0: Well, Father it is with rejoicing in our hearts that we've gathered today recognizing that the tomb is empty and that we have a living hope in Jesus Christ. Father would you make the gospel real to us today? We need it. We need your strength. We need the word of God to impact us. We recognize our weaknesses, we recognize the world pressing in upon us. We recognize our own vulnerabilities to our fleshliness. We recognize that Satan is a schemer and he wants to tear down your church and your people. And so, Father, use your word to strengthen us and to enlighten us. May your Holy Spirit just work in us this morning. And as never before, may the reality of the resurrection hit home with us. Father, we thank you for your good hand upon us as a church. And we thank you for special times like this when we... Just join our voices together to sing our praise to you. We look forward to being in your presence one day, Lord. In the meantime, help us to be faithful. Help us to be committed to the obedience of your word. Guide us in truth, now I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremy was born with a twisted body and a slow mind. At the age of 12, he was still only in the second grade, seemingly unable to learn. His teacher, Doris Miller, often became exasperated with him. He would squirm in his seat and he would drool and he would make grunting noises. At other times, he spoke clearly and distinctly as if a spotlight had penetrated the darkness of his brain. Most of the time, however, Jeremy irritated his teacher. One day, she decided she must call his parents, and she did, asking them to please come in for a parent-teacher conference. As the foresters sat quietly in the empty classroom, Doris said to them, "'You know, Jeremy really belongs in a special school. It isn't fair to him to be with younger children who don't have learning problems. Why, there is a a five-year gap between his age and that of other students.' Mrs. Forrester just cried softly into a tissue while her husband spoke. Uh, Miss Miller, he said, there is no school of that kind nearby. It would be a terrible shock for Jeremy if we had to take him out of this school. We know he really likes it here. And Doris sat for a long time after they left, staring at the snow outside the window. Its coldness seemed to seep into her soul. She wanted to sympathize with the Foresters. After all, their only child had a terminal illness. But it wasn't fair to keep him in her class. She had 18 other youngsters to teach, and Jeremy was a distraction. Furthermore, he would never learn to read or write. Why waste any more time trying? As she pondered the situation, guilt washed over her. Oh, God, she said aloud, here I am complaining when my problems are nothing compared to that poor family Please help me to be more patient with Jeremy. From that day on, she tried hard to ignore Jeremy's noises and his blank stares. And then one day, his, he limped to her desk, dragging his bad leg behind him. I love you, Miss Miller, he exclaimed loud enough for the whole class to hear. The other students snickered, and Doris's face turned red. She stammered, why, that's very nice, Jeremy. Now, please take your seat. Spring came, and the children talked excitedly about the coming of Easter. Doris told them the story of Jesus, and then to emphasize the idea of new life springing forth, she gave each of the children a large plastic egg. And now, she said to them, I want you to take this home and bring it back tomorrow with something inside that shows new life. Do you understand? Yes, Miss Miller, the children responded enthusiastically. All except Jeremy. Jeremy. He just listened intently. His eyes never left her face. He did not even make his usual noises. Had he understood what she had said about Jesus' death and resurrection? Did he understand the assignment? Uh, Perhaps she should call his parents and explain the project to them. That evening, though, Doris's kitchen sink stopped up. She called the landlord and waited for an hour for him to come by and unclog it. After that, she still had to shop for groceries, iron a blouse, and prepare a vocabulary test for the next day. She completely forgot about phoning Jeremy's parents. The next morning, 19 children came to school, laughing and talking as they placed their eggs in the large wicker basket on Miss Miller's desk. After they completed their math lesson, it was time to open the eggs. In the first egg, Doris found a flower. Oh, yes, a flower is certainly a sign of new life, she said. When plants peek through the ground, we know that spring is here. A small girl in the first row waved her arms. That's my egg, Miss Miller, she called out. The next egg contained a plastic butterfly, which looked very real. Doris held it up. We all know that a caterpillar changes and grows into a beautiful butterfly. Yes, that is new life, too. Little Judy, halfway back, smiled proudly and said, "'Miss Miller, that one is mine!' Next, Doris found a rock with moss on it, and she explained that moss, too, showed life. Billy spoke up from the back of the classroom. "'My daddy helped me,' he said. And then Doris opened the fourth egg. She paused. The egg was empty. "'Surely it must be Jeremy's,' she thought, and of course, he did not understand her instructions.' If only she had not forgotten to phone his parents. And because she did not want to embarrass him, she quietly set the egg aside and reached for another. Suddenly, Jeremy spoke up. Miss Miller, aren't you going to talk about my egg? Flustered, Doris replied, But Jeremy, your egg is empty. He looked into her eyes and said softly, Yes, but Jesus' tomb was empty too. Time stopped. When she could speak again, Doris asked him, Jeremy, do you know why the tomb was empty? Oh, yes, he said. Jesus was killed and put in there, and then his father raised him up. The recess bell rang, and while the children excitedly ran out to the schoolyard, Doris cried. The cold inside her melted completely away. Three months later, Jeremy died. Those who paid their respects at the funeral home were surprised to see 19 eggs on top of his casket, all of them empty. Now, this familiar story is a true story. Came out first back in April of 1988 with Dr. Dobson and the Focus on the Family magazine. Sets the stage quite well for our story today. It's in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4. The reason that it sets the stage so well for us is because in Acts chapter three and chapter four we're going to have a story of a man with bad legs, a little bit like Jeremy. We're also going to have the story of a man that though he had a broken body, he understood very much the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before we dig into our story, and it is a narrative, it is an account. In Acts chapter 3 and 4 of an incident in the life of Peter and John, both disciples of our Lord Jesus. I want to remind you of a little timeline here of where we are when we turn to Acts chapter 3. This lends itself to a, a better understanding of the ramifications of what's going on in their lives. You know the life and times of Jesus, how at age 30 he went public with his ministry. The first miracle that he performed, remember, was the turning of the water to wine at Cana. And that launched him publicly. He gathered his disciples. He healed the blind. He healed the lame, the blind, the deaf, mutes. He calmed the sea. He had a tremendous ministry. We know that well. Then last Sunday we celebrated Palm Sunday as as our Lord comes into Jerusalem. And he's coming now to go to the cross, All right, this great moment in time. They think they're going to kill him, but he's going to give himself away. This is just a remarkable time in our Lord's life. That week was very busy, and then Friday comes, the betrayal kiss of Judas, the arrest of our Lord Jesus. There he goes, and then he goes to the cross, beaten, battered, crown of thorns mashed down on his head. And then one of the greatest moments in history, the greatest moment in history, the great exchange takes place. As Jesus is nailed to the cross, what does he do? He intercepts, he interrupts the wrath of God upon sin so that we can have an exit, so that we can have a way out. People who are stuck in their sin now can look to Jesus, who was the perfect sacrificial lamb, the substitute in our place. He who knew no sin, he becomes sin for us. He who never broke the law, his righteousness, his keeping of the law completely in God's eyes can be transferred by grace through faith upon us when we come to the cross. A tremendous moment. Amen. Then they buried him and they took him down off the cross. They put him in the grave. Three days later, Sunday morning, we read Luke's account. We've been singing about it. He rises again from the dead authenticating his message proving who he is and then do you remember how many days then he stays on earth before he ascends back up to heaven to be with his heavenly father 40 days In that 40 days, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that he was seen by many, one group of 500 people, others dozens at a time, individuals, and he authenticated the reality of his physical resurrection. It wasn't just a spiritual resurrection, it was a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. And he had a new transformed body. That's why when the disciples were huddled up in that upper room, and you kind of need to keep that image in your mind because who's among them? Peter and John, the main characters of our story in just a moment. You see, they were afraid that a campaign was going to be started, that they that the Jews were going to round up through Roman authority, round up the rest of the disciples, the followers of Christ, and that they would be crucified or run through with a spear or pike. They didn't want any parts of that, so grown men are huddled in that upper room, probably hiding under a table, playing cards by candlelight, shushing each other when they hear footsteps outside the room, peeking through the blinds, wondering if their turn is next, and there they are, cowering down. But then something happened. Our Lord appears to them. That was that glorified body. I mean, go figure how you can eat eat like carrots and fish and then come through a wall. I don't know why the carrots didn't get stuck on the outside of the wall, but... There he is, in among them, right? And that's when he shows himself to them. Thomas wasn't with them. A week later, he's with Thomas. Thomas, take my hands, take my side, touch me. Let me show you, this is me. You can't blame Thomas for being like, I don't get this. It's incongruous. It doesn't fit what we understand to be reality. And so it was that Thomas was able to authenticate his faith by touching Jesus. In that very same passage in John 20, Jesus looks at Thomas and says, Stop doubting and believe. He said, Because you have seen me, you have faith. Greater are those who have not seen me and have faith than those who have seen me. That's us. It's a greater faith. You believe it to be true. And so for 40 days, Jesus shows himself to his disciples. He continues to teach them. And on that sea, on the sand, on the sea by by Galilee, that's where he restored Peter, remember? Peter who had denied him three times. They were out fishing. He calls him in. He's got a little fire going. He's got fish there roasting on a fire. And the the disciples come in and, and he has this exchange with Peter. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. And Peter is restored. Feed my sheep. But only 40 days go by. And then we're at the first chapter of the book of Acts. It's A-C-T-S, not A-A-X-E. A-C-T-S as in actions. The acts or actions, the activities of the apostles. Because now what the book of Acts is going to do, it's going to react to the life of Jesus. He's poured himself into the disciples and they now are going to go all around the world and do even greater things than our Lord did. What do you mean by greater things? Greater things in that Jesus ministered in a region like 30 miles wide and 70 miles long. You say, who could be greater than Jesus? He could make the blind to see and the lame to walk. Yes, but... The disciples would take the gospel ultimately, generationally, around the world, not just in a 30 by 70 area. The disciples would teach one generation after another. Jesus only ministered for three years. Now, for 2,000 years, the gospel has been being preached all around the world. That's what John meant when he said, in great, that, where he recorded our Lord's words. That one would come upon them and empower them and they would do even greater deeds. And so the apostles get it finally. The disciples finally understand that Jesus is the Messiah and that he rose again and he authenticated his message and he proved his deity. And now 40 days later in the first chapter of Acts, if you flip back one page, if you've already turned to chapter 3, in chapter 1 you have the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And that's where this same Jesus who goes up into heaven will come again. He's he's given his last instruction to them, his great commandment to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. And go in greater ways, preach the gospel. He tells them before he ascends into heaven, just 40 days after the resurrection, I want you to wait in Jerusalem because here the Holy Spirit will come upon you and empower you. So they wait there and in chapter 2 they're in a prayer meeting and then the tongues of fire come from heaven and the Holy Spirit in a very real way manifests himself to them giving them great power and authority. And this is an unusual time of ministry where they can understand tongues, languages that they've never learned before. They can even do healing power like Christ can. It's all recorded right there. What I want you to get when we turn to chapter 3 is that we've only had the resurrection, we've had 40 days, we've had the ascension, we've had the Holy Spirit come back, and we've had maybe uh, six weeks go by. Just a, f- a small window of time. And what's so important about this is to get that Peter and John in our story go from hiding under a table in an upper room. Peter goes three days before that of denying his Lord Jesus in front of a little girl when the rooster crows to to, uh, just a number of weeks later, preaching with boldness no other message but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the timeline Let's go to the story. I'm going to give you seven words to hang our, our thoughts on that kind of prog- as our story progresses, and it'll help us just kind of break the story down. The first word in our story and the first scene that we have is brokenness. Brokenness. It's a man with lame legs. Now, Peter and John, Acts chapter 3, verse 1, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. (laughs) Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. You got the scene. If we were familiar with this temple, we would know that exactly where the beautiful gate is, the gates had names, and this was the gate beautiful, This guy had been lame all of his life. No doubt he had begging down to an art form. I would if I were him. He knew how to find that right spot at the gate where the most people were coming into the temple, uncover those old scrawny broken legs, lay them out there. He had been lame since birth. He knew no other body. He had his can, probably threw a couple of pebbles in it, shake it up, make it sound like some coins. Alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And here come Peter and John. The first thing that we see in the story is brokenness. We notice right away that Peter and John respond with word number two, kindness, kindness. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Verse four, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. That's an interesting detail. We don't know what Peter saw and John saw when they looked into his eyes. We're going to learn later in our story that this man's faith in Jesus is what healed him. What I think happened in that little transaction of gaze is that Peter stared into his eyes to see what kind of request this was from what kind of a man this was. You see, you have to remember that this man was a contemporary of Jesus. He was almost the same age as Jesus. He was a little bit older. He would have been about seven years old with his little broken, weak legs. Lame from birth, it says. About seven years old when Jesus was born. As he grew, 30 years later, he would have been maybe 37 years old. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he was a little bit older. I'm thinking of him as about 40. And so, this man was a contemporary of Jesus, maybe a little bit older. He had heard about Jesus... And he had heard of the healings of Jesus. It is even possible that from his spot where he sat begging, he had watched Jesus heal people. But he had never been able to get our Lord's attention. It's possible. That's all speculation. But he evidently knew that Messiah had come. He knew the news. We know that. No beggar on the street would not hear of all the things that had been happening happening throughout Jerusalem and Judea. And so here he was. On God's timetable, ready to be healed. You know, sometimes we get pretty disappointed in Jesus, don't we? We talked about that last week. God, you just don't do things the way I want you to do them. We don't like that. Sometimes God has things going on that we don't know anything about, and it's a time to just trust Him. Wait and see what God is going to do. Don't get angry with God, He's in control. And this man may be frustrated, but also a man who understood that Jesus could heal him. Maybe all that in that transaction of eyes happened with Peter. He saw his faith in his eyes. Here's the kindness that Peter shows. uh, Verse 5, And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise up and walk. Well, what a great moment. would well, you love to have been there? Amen. Now, Peter didn't have any money. That's not a surprise. He'd been following Jesus around for three years. He hadn't been fishing. You know, he went fishing and caught 153 fish or something, the one account tells us, when he said, I go a-fishing, and they didn't catch anything all night until Jesus said, throw your net on the other side. So he hadn't been fishing much. He didn't have much cash. His pockets evidently really were empty. Furthermore, what good are a few coins when you've got resurrection power to offer? He looks at this guy. He says, I don't have any gold or silver, but what I do have, I'll give you. He takes him by the hand and he says, Rise up and walk. Notice what happens. Verse 7, he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And that's a subtle reminder by the writer that Isaiah and the prophets had predicted that you will know Messiah and you will know his ministry by the lame walking and leaping and praising God. It was prophesied. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. So all the people of the community knew this guy. There were no surprises here. They had seen him sit here for years. They understood exactly who this guy was. They had seen his bony, shriveled up, lame legs... And his bony feet and ankles and toes. He understood, they understood this guy couldn't walk. And now they know exactly who they're looking at. And this guy, like a leprechaun, is dancing and jumping and kicking up his heels and yelling and shaking his fist in the air and probably doing chest bumps with people. Immediately he'll, wouldn't you? Never been, never walked before. Never walked before. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Notice that he's not praising Peter and John. He's praising God. I think that's what Peter saw in his eyes. And so it says, and he recognized him as the one, and the people recognized, verse 10, recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I guess so. Wonder and amazement, verse 10. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. It was a big patio area, maybe some steps off to the side, and Peter, our third word, begins to witness. He's a preacher. He's got a living illustration of the power of Christ, this lame guy that the whole community knows, who's dancing around on whole, strong, muscular legs now, and the The word just spreads like wildfire and people go nuts and they just come rushing in. We're going to see at the beginning of chapter 4 in a minute that that day at least 5,000 men believed, not counting women and children, there were literally thousands of people that crowded around looking in, trying to see what the world was going on in the busy city that day. Here's Peter's witness. And while he clung to Peter and John, verse 11, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. He's going to preach now. Now, just remember this. It was only a matter of a few months, extended weeks, certainly less than a year, that Peter had stood on that night that Jesus was betrayed, And he had said, when a little girl spoke to him, I think you're one of those Jesus followers. And he said, I am not. I swear it on my mama's grave and the gold in her teeth. I don't know the man. I don't know. And one of the gospel accounts tells us he looked and he made eye contact with where Jesus was. You imagine that moment? You remember, this is the same Peter on the night that he was betrayed. This is the same Peter who, when... The Lord Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, tonight, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. Peter said, you don't understand. Not me. I will never deny you. Never. And he showed it up there in the garden when Judas, filled with the devil, comes to betray Jesus, bringing the Sanhedrin and and the temple guard with him. to to turn Jesus over, kisses Jesus on the cheek. What does Peter do when they start grabbing Jesus and roughing him up and wanting to tie his hands behind his back? Peter whips out this sword that he had come up with at a yard sale. He's a fisherman. Starts flailing the thing around, and before Jesus can shut him down and say, Peter, we don't fight that kind of battle. Peter, you don't understand. Our battle is not a physical battle. It's spiritual. Peter's flailing around the sword, and one of the servants of the religious leaders there, Caiaphas' servant, ducks down evidently trying to get out of the way, and Peter whacks him on the side of the skull with the side of the blade and shears off his ear. His ear goes flopping on the ground, or falling to the ground. Ears don't flop once they're they're detached. I always think about this moment. You remember what happened? This, This is true. You Christians believe weird stuff. And so Jesus bends over and he picks up the ear. Now the ear had to have like little leaves and dirt and stuff, right? I think Jesus blew it off. And he stuck it back on. That's what the Bible says. He stuck his ear back on. And those guys were so bodacious that they still arrested Jesus. I mean, you think really, really highly of yourself. That when Jesus, you watch an ear get cut off and you watch Jesus stick it back on right in front of your eyes and you still think you know better than he knows? Instead of falling on their face, they arrest him. He demonstrated his deity right in front of them. Right in front of them. They were so blind. You know, when you're blind in your sin, you don't see anything. You, You don't think Jesus knows anything. You don't think Jesus has done anything for you? When you're blind in your sin, you can't see the obvious right in front of you. That's a scary place to be. See, only humble people come to God. Proud people never come to God. Proud people hate God for interrupting their lives. Well, there he is. Peter, who had recently been afraid, denying his Lord, hours after that, wiping off the ear... Here he is, in Acts chapter 3 now, getting ready to preach to the very same people who had crucified Jesus, the crowds. Look what his witness is. They're utterly astounded. Verse 12, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety or goodness we have made him walk? It's like the whole crowd's there. The guy's still probably yelling and jumping. And Peter answers the big question. "That the Why are you looking at me like I did something? I didn't do anything. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, verse 13, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. This is where he gets pretty bold. This is the guy who just denied Jesus to a 13-year-old girl, maybe? who weeks later now is standing in front of thousands of people, and he says, this Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. Remember, Pilate was going to let Jesus go, and the people screamed and said, no, crucify him, give us Barabbas. But you, verse 14, Peter says, you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. It's like going to start a riot? But he quickly finishes his sentence, whom God raised from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. Peter's just given a witness to what he knows, what he's seen. He's like, I was there when, when Judas kissed him. I was there when the guy's ear got whacked off. I was the one who pitifully, as a grown man, melted in front of an accusative little girl. I was the one who abandoned my Lord Jesus. I was the one who hid under a table in the upper room. I was the one who said, I'm going fishing. I'm done with this Jesus stuff. I was the one that stood in the sand on the shore of Galilee and our Lord looked at me and said, Peter, do you love me? And I had to say, I do love you, Lord. I'm the one who taught. I saw the empty tomb. I ran down there first and jumped inside and looked. And it was empty. And now we've talked to him and we know. And now what does Peter do? Everywhere he goes, he just gives a witness. He just gives a witness. You notice what happens then is the next key word in our story is rudeness. The rest of chapter 3, okay, so let's get our timeline. Peter and John in this story are walking down to the temple, that's to pray, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They see the lame guy, they heal the lame guy through Jesus' power. The crowd gathers, Peter begins to witness about the resurrection. And the next thing we see, our next key word, number 4, is rudeness. Rudeness. Peter continues his message and what he does then after he says, we're not the ones who healed him, the resurrected Christ healed him. His power, his resurrection power healed him. The rest of chapter 3 is Peter showing people who knew their Old Testament, these Jews in Jerusalem, showing them that all of the prophets of the Old Testament had done nothing but point to Christ, and that ultimately the end of chapter 3 in Peter's message, he said, and one greater than Moses. You see, they thought, this crowd thought Moses was the greatest. And they said, one greater than Moses would come, and that was Messiah, and indeed he was. And then we get to chapter 4, and he's still preaching, okay? So just a little time has gone by. Not much time. And we're in chapter 4. He's still preaching. And the next thing, here's rudeness. And as they were speaking, chapter 4, verse 1, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Isn't it interesting how... Proclaiming Jesus and his resurrection annoys people. That's very interesting. It is interesting to me, by the way, that though they were rude and they resisted Peter, they could not refute Peter. Why couldn't it? Because Peter was there. Peter had seen it. Peter had touched Jesus. Peter had been with Jesus. Peter watched him go up into heaven. Peter knew it was real. And he has a powerful testimony of a transformed life, hiding under a table in an upper room, to standing out in Solomon's portico, proclaiming the risen Christ. Bring it on, he says. I don't care what you do to me. I don't care what you say. And in fact, ultimately, Peter ends up being crucified for his testimony of Christ. And in fact, church history tells us that he said, right when they were nailing him to his cross... That he would not be worthy of being crucified like our Lord turned me upside down. And so when they stood up the cross, they stood it upside down, so he was head down. We don't know that for sure, but that's church tradition says that. He'll be just like Peter. He who was so shameful and unloyal at the end of his life because of the resurrection reality realizes that he isn't even worthy to be crucified right side up like his Lord Jesus These guys are rude. They greatly annoyed and they were because of teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And verse three says, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. So what is Peter preaching? As the Sadducees come in and the Pharisees, who combine together to make the Sanhedrin a group of religious, pious leaders who are under Roman authority to keep the people in order, because Jerusalem was under Roman rule at this time, so they let the religious leaders control and manipulate the populace. As they have this group of hundreds, even thousands of people gathered, clear from the outside edge, they're like, What's going on here? What's going on here? And what is it that comes to their ears? What their testimony is, what annoyed them, is what they hear Peter preaching. He's preaching the resurrection. He's preaching the resurrection. He's preaching the resurrection. Jesus is real. They make their way through the crowd. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. Go up and arrest these guys right right while Peter's preaching. And they put him in jail overnight. you ever been in jail for Jesus? Raise your hand if you've ever been in jail for Jesus. I'm serious. Like, maybe a pro-life cause or maybe... Given out literature and somewhere in a non free speech zone, we have one over here. Now you think about that for a minute and usually usually if we get pushed, we shut up. usually if we're uncomfortable, we back off. And you know that Peter. He's like, I'm just telling you what I know. You can't shut me up. Rudeness is interrupted by progress. Look at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Listen, it was a great thing for a man that day to get his lame legs healed. But it was a greater thing that day for 5,000 men to go home to their wives and be born again for all of eternity. You remember, Jesus said, What good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? 5,000 men, 5,000 men who went home. Surely one of them went home. His wife looked at him and said, What got into you? You didn't kick the dog when you came in. You didn't snap at me. You didn't yell at the kids. What got into you? I'll tell you what got into me. Jesus got into me. 5,000 men's lives were transformed. 5,000 men had eternity with Christ guaranteed through faith in the resurrected Christ. That is a powerful moment. That is progress for the church Peter then, the next morning, after being in jail overnight, the next morning, Peter and John are brought out in front of the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders. Look at the rest of the story. We're almost done with it. Verse 5, chapter 4. On the next day, there are rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander. We don't really know who John and Alexander are, but we do know Annas and Caiaphas. Remember those guys? Those are the guys who crucified Jesus. And by the way, I forgot to tell you that part of the reason the Sadducees were so upset with Jesus preaching the resurrection, with Peter preaching the resurrection of Jesus, is because they were theological liberals. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in a spiritual life hereafter. They were very physical. They believed that if they could figure it out, it was true. And if they couldn't figure it out, it wasn't true. They were kind of a Gnostic type religion, they would be the equivalent of theological liberals today who don't believe the Bible means what it says. It's like, well, yeah, that doesn't mean that. Well, how do you know? Well, because I made it up what it means. Well, if words mean anything, well, the words don't mean that. They say You can't believe in a resurrection. Well, yes, I can believe in a resurrection. I saw a resurrected Jesus. No, 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 there's no such thing as a resurrection, and we'll put you in jail for saying it. Talk about freedom of speech, right? Freedom of religion. So they get Peter and John out with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, these same birds. And verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired... By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. People love to reject Jesus. The builders, which and this has become the cornerstone of our faith though. And now here's our final, our number six word, uniqueness. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now what did he just say? you got to be kidding me. Peter's standing in front of the Sanhedrin. He's standing in front of the very guys who crucified Jesus, who had the kangaroo court on Good Friday night, who directed the Roman soldiers to nail him to cross, who fomented the crowd up to holler for Barabbas. That's who he's standing in front of. He's already been in jail all night, probably in shackles. And they say, Okay, Peter, tell us once and for all, by whose name did you do They're giving him an out. They're kind of saying, okay, you can just kind of fudge this thing over and get out of here. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, because Jesus said, don't worry when you're in front of the court, Luke 21. So when I leave, and when you're testifying for my name, and you even become prosecuted for your faith, don't worry, the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, I will tell you what to say. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, comes up with this powerful line. He said, you guys rejected him. You killed him, but God raised him to life. And then in verse 12, he said, Furthermore, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's the uniqueness, the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, there is not a more politically, socially incorrect message than that one right there. Are you kidding me? You sit in your lunchroom with a cup of coffee. You sit in your office complex with, a, with your office people. And you get into a conversation on religion. And they start talking about all the things that they think. And, and like many people, they always make up their own faith. They, they make it up. Like if you ask them, why do you believe? Well, I read this book once when I was in college. And I really believe this stuff. So you're kind of putting it all together, making it up. Yeah. So it's not in the Bible. Oh, the Bible's a good book, but I don't believe it. It's not for me. It's for you, but it's not for me. Then, about this time of the conversation, you say, by the way, do you know that, if you want to really be radical, you say, you know that you will not go to heaven believing what you believe. By the way, you're condemned to hell. (laughs) Oh. Oh, By the way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. That's where Peter heard it first. So Peter now is saying, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby you must be saved. There are not many roads that lead to heaven. There is only one road that leads to heaven. It is based on the truth and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And on that authority and the authority of the word of God, you say it. Don't say it's snotty, but you get into a conversation like that and see how many friends you have at the end of the day. They don't like this stuff. Now, we're pretty comfortable here because by and large, you know, we're all kind of dressed and in our right mind and cooperative and we're trained to be quiet and be still. It's possible that even on the inside right now, somebody's screaming like, you've got to be kidding me. One way to heaven? Yeah, there's only salvation in one person. That's Jesus Christ. Why? Because He's the one that's substituted in for sinful people who couldn't save themselves. That's the uniqueness. We end the passage by seeing the boldness... Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Can anybody ever tell, hanging around you, that you've been with Jesus? These guys had a boldness because they'd been with Jesus. Powered and fueled by the resurrection You do realize that we don't have a story here in Acts chapter 3 and 4 if we don't have the resurrection, right? We don't have a story if we don't have the resurrection. First of all, we don't have a key character. Peter. We don't have Peter. We have Peter over here denying his faith in front of a little girl, denying his Lord Jesus, making eye contact, the rooster crows. We have Peter running and hiding. We have Peter with the disciples in the upper room. Until the resurrection happened, he was not bold. So you don't have a story here. You don't have a preacher. You don't have Peter in this story if you don't have a resurrection. You don't have a healing in this story. You don't have a lame man getting well if you don't have a resurrection. Peter and John wouldn't have cared about a lame guy. Peter and John wouldn't have had anything to offer a lame guy except for the power of a resurrected Christ. I'll go up there and try to heal that guy in, in the name of Joseph Smith or Sun Young Moon or Muhammad. Go ahead and try and heal him in that name. It isn't going to happen. I mean, those guys weren't living back then, but whatever the... You know, the, the in the name of the Greek gods of the storm and the sea, heal him. Wouldn't have happened. There was no healing in the story. You don't have a story if you don't have the resurrection. You don't have angry leaders if you don't have a resurrection, because that's what ticked them off. You don't have transformed lives of five thousand men. Going home, not cussing anymore, not kicking the dog anymore, not cheating on their wives anymore because they have 5,000 men accepted the forgiveness that is in Christ that day and the transformed life and the newness that is in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You don't have 5,000 men, lives changed in this story if you don't have the resurrection. The entire message of Peter is laced with The resurrection. Eh, just a few closing thoughts. So, okay, good story. Okay, cool story about Jeremy and the hollow egg, and cool story about Peter and the lame man. It's all good. Let's go home. We got a big ham in the oven. How does the resurrection apply to my life today? What do I take with me here? Who cares? What's, what's the big deal about the resurrection? Well, one thing that occurred to me based upon the example of Peter and John is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually the very thing that drives me to care about broken people. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, number one, applying this to my life in a practical way, is the driving force that would make me care for broken people. You know we have broken people all around us. Sin is eating people for lunch. It's all over. I deal with them all week. Come follow me around if you need to find broken people. You say, well, you know, we could take an offering and we could send this guy to the University of Maryland Medical Center and we could heal his broken legs and that would be a really great thing. Yes, it would. But do you know what's greater to give that broken man? The fact that there is a forgiver of sins and His name is Jesus and that He's gone to the cross and He's run interference with a holy God and that you don't have to bear the weight of your own sinfulness and someday when you die and you breathe your last and you enter the presence of a holy God and He looks at you and says, why should I let you into my heaven? You will have the right answer. The right answer is, you shouldn't, but look in your Jesus account and you'll find my name. So you could get the whole world for somebody, but what good is it? if they lose their soul. So listen, you want a driving factor for helping broken people? It's the resurrected Christ. It's the fact that He went to the cross. That's the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-6. The gospel is that Jesus died, was buried, and He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is what the good news is. And the good news is, Paul said in Romans 10, 9-10, that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? From the condemnation of your own sinfulness. All through the resurrection. You know what? If you don't have silver and gold to give away, but you got Jesus to give away, you're giving away the right thing. Don't be embarrassed to give Jesus away to broken people. It's what they need. They don't always recognize it, but that's what they need. The second thing I want you to recognize that applies to our lives today from Peter and John. Not only does the resurrection of Jesus Christ drive my love and concern for broken people, but number two, it is the defense of my exclusive gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is my defense for my exclusive gospel. What do I mean? I was already alluding to this. You say, but Pastor Van, why do you believe that there's only one way to heaven? Why can't other people all around the world with all of their faith? why can't they believe? Because the, the gospel is true and authenticated because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is God who came in the flesh and he proved it by rising from the dead. You can't kill God. In his physical madness, he died, but he rose again. Listen, you can go to Muhammad's grave... Buddha is not alive. Confucius is not alive. He's, Sun, Young, Moon is not alive. Joseph Smith is not alive. Jesus Christ is living today, authenticating his message, actually interceding with the Father for us. In fact, look what Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says. Romans 1 4. And who through the Spirit of Holiness was declared with power. To be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. That's Jesus Christ our Lord. That is what authenticated His message. You don't have to be embarrassed of an exclusive gospel. There is salvation is found in no one else, no other name under heaven. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that His words are true. That you can't have truth systems that conflict. There's only one one truth. Truth by definition is true. It's not multiple. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Why? Because you're trusting in somebody who just died. It was bogus. He, it's not the truth. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very thing that authenticates our faith. You do not have to be embarrassed, Paul said in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You see, it's true. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to be obnoxious. You don't have to be rude. You want to be gracious and kind. I think for the most part, Christians are. I don't think Christians are the ones going around killing people right now, blowing up churches in Nigeria. The Christians are getting blown up. What is it about Jesus that is so polarizing? He's the one who came, died on the cross for your sin. All you have to do is come to the cross and repent. Forsake your sin. I think that's it. We don't want to give up our sin. We want to make up our own rules. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is my defense for this exclusive gospel. Why do I believe there's only one way to heaven? Because there's only one Savior who rose from the dead and did what he said he would do. Finally, like Peter and John... How does the resurrection apply to my life? I think ultimately it defines my life and my testimony. Not only does it drive me in concern for broken people, not only does it defend my theology of of an exclusive gospel, but it defines my very life and testimony. What do I mean by that? If it weren't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what would define Peter's life? The defining moment of Peter's life would be his betrayal of our Lord Jesus to a young girl. Enter the resurrected Christ and you now blot away all of the stupidity of the past. How many of you have moments in your past that would be defining moments of your life if it weren't for the saving power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be known for what you're known for. You would be known for snorting coke or getting drunk or carousing. Or you'd be known for all kinds of things that are represented in sin. That's what you'd be known for. But enter the resurrected Christ. And one day, the the lights turned on and you understood that you had a Savior from your sin. And you could come and you could pour it all down at the cross. And he paid the penalty for that sin, so that by grace, through faith, you could just receive his forgiveness. That now defines you. If you are a Christian, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what defines your life and testimony. You might not think of it that way, but it's true. Let's bow in prayer. Before I close in prayer, would you just ask yourself today where you are in your position of faith in the resurrected Christ. Maybe it's a day where some Christians need to stop being embarrassed of Jesus. He seems to be the unacceptable prophet out there these days. Don't walk around with a chip on your shoulder. Have a loving concern for broken people. Be boldly courageous for the gospel that is made real through the resurrection. Stop being embarrassed of Jesus. Maybe right now you need, to, you need to ratchet up your commitment level to Christ. Others of you, maybe you don't realize your need for a Savior. You need, uh, you need to go to the cross because that's where Jesus paid the price for your sin. You've never acknowledged it. Listen, I'll tell you something. Jesus is not out to ruin your good times. He's out to bring you life, life more abundantly. He might be out to get rid of some sin out of your life. But he'll bless your life. But only humble people come to the cross. Only people who recognize their sinfulness and their brokenness spiritually come to the cross. Maybe that's you today. What a great day to put your faith and trust in Christ If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You can tell God that right now in the quietness of your own heart. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you, grateful for the testimony of Peter and John, grateful for the great resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, encourage us as we go, as we're with families and as we feast today, and as we have this holiday weekend, may the resurrection of Jesus Christ be more real than ever before.